Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And thank you for joining us here today on AOA, Agriculture of America. Great to have you along for the conversation about what is happening and impacting rural America. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Today's program brought to you by our friends at Cenex. Cenex Premium Diesels and Cenex Lubricants like Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. They're diesels such as Ruby Fieldmaster for off-road applications or Roadmaster XL. Everyday products powered locally by Cenex. Coming up on today's program, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University about the latest meat demand monitor. That is coming up here in segment two today. In segment three, we'll talk with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. What is the latest on a continuing resolution to keep the government funded past next week? What about a farm bill? Will we get a one-year extension, five-year farm bill? What's the outlook for that? We have a lot of things to talk about with the senator. We will do that coming up here at the bottom of the hour. And I'll also have a look at a few other news headlines we are watching. County committee elections are open this week. We're going to talk about that and more coming up later in the show. Kicking things off, though, here today, we want to talk about the DRIVE Act, the speed limiter proposal. What is the latest there? Joining us now, the EVP of the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association, OIDA, as we call it. Louis Pugh is with us here today on AOA. Louis, it's great to have you back on the show. How are you? Uh, I'm good, as always, and it's great to be on your show, as always. I appreciate it. Well, Louie, uh, let's jump in and talk about this DRIVE Act as uh, we see the speed limiter proposal and everything going on here. We've talked about this before. Just get us up to speed. What is the latest here as, in terms of this uh, legislation working through uh, Congress right now? Well, Congress, there's a senator, you know, Senator Burkeen from Oklahoma, or I'm mean, sorry, Congressman Burkeen from Oklahoma and Senator Dane from Montana have both introduced legislation, both in the House and the Senate, the DRIVE Act that we're talking about. That's H.R. 3039 and Senate Bill 2671, and that's to try to stop this craziness of wanting to put a speed limiter mandate on all commercial vehicles, 26,000 pounds and above GVW that's coming out of FMCSA. And that's everything, not just including agricultural trucks. And, you know, a lot of ag people use these big trucks. So, And uh, not too long ago, FMCSA leaked that maybe it would be 68 mile an hour, but then they pulled that right back. It came out. It was only out for a few hours, and then they pulled it back, which would mean if that would come into play, the speed limit for all commercial motor vehicles on that would be 68. We've heard speeds as low as 60 and as high as 70. But, you know, that could create a big differential, especially in your western states. Um, these bills are slowly working their ways through committee. And, you know, what we need is people to reach out and be calling their lawmakers and asking them to start sponsoring this bill to get more talk. Well, Louie, I know that in your case, you're not only a member of OIDA, you're not only a trucker, you're a farmer, you're a member of Farm Bureau. I mean, I mean, you know a lot of the agricultural impacts that could happen if uh, speed limiters were put into our semi-trucks. So can you tell us your thoughts from the agriculture perspective on what this could do in terms of road safety and so much more? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's going to affect agriculture sort of like it's going to affect commercial trucking both. It's going to slow everybody down. You're going to have to have more trucks. Um, what's really going to get what, – what we also find, what happens is people that have speed-limited trucks, they try to make up time on rural routes. So that will make, you know, could make rural highways less dangerous or more dangerous for everyone. It's going to cause a lot more road rage, probably a lot more rear-end collisions, um, much more congestion because, as I said in the beginning, we're going to need more pieces of equipment to all the same amount of stuff that we're hauling now if this comes into play. And, you know, when you're a farmer, especially in ag, and you're, you know, you've only got a certain window to get your crops in or out of the field, and you've only got a certain window to get your livestock to market, this can really play havoc on some of that stuff and, and will in the future. 
And you're right, I am a member, and he was working at Ohio as a farm bureau, and I was kind of getting on farm bureau last week, my local farm bureau, for not telling anybody about this. You need to be educating ag farmers and stuff, because they need to be reaching out and, again, calling your lawmakers and telling them to support these two bills is the best way we can stop this madness. Well, and to your point, the congestion that could happen, I I think about this uh, already, you know, when I I drive on a interstate highway, for instance, uh, I see it more there than I do necessarily on on rural two-lane roads, but uh, I do see it on rural two-lane roads as well. Just thinking about in terms of the amount of traffic that's already out there, if we add more to it, I, I can't imagine what that would do to road safety and more like we've been talking about it just to me it seems kind of silly to put a speed limiter inside a semi-truck oh it's totally crazy and this is all derived from big fleets and i mean the safety advocates as well but big fleets too they're behind this american trucking association with their fleet and all this is is a fleet management tool that they use for their drivers the big carriers either to for control their speed, to help with fuel. There's different reasons why they use them, but there's no reason that everybody should have these. You know, and it's just, it's just crazy. You know, they've done a study, and if trucks are going 10 miles per hour slower than the, than the regular traffic, that's going to create 227% more interactions between cars and trucks. And we all know that's how accidents happen. The more interactions, the more chance of an accident. Well, Louie, you mentioned it a couple of times. Uh, Folks need to reach out to their lawmakers uh, and encourage them to support the DRIVE Act. I know that OIDA also has a website that makes it easy for folks to reach out to their representatives. Uh, Where can folks go to do that uh, online, Louie? Yeah, the easiest place, and you don't have to remember all these numbers and stuff, is you go to fightingfortruckers.com, fightingfortruckers.com, and right there's all the information. You can find out who your lawmaker is if you don't know. You can send a message to your lawmaker right off of that website. It's easy, Phil. It's, it's as easy as putting a comment about it on a social media site or something. You can do it really quick. Within two minutes, you can send a message to all your lawmakers to sponsor this, and that's what we've got to do. Time is of the essence. Louie, uh, we got about a minute before we let you go. Any final thoughts you would share with us about the uh, Drive Act and the speed limiter proposal? It just, again, this is just cra- more craziness out of Washington, D.C. And, and it's again, it's a fleet management tool. There's no proven science. There's no proven safety. In fact, we think the numbers and, and believe that it's going to go the opposite way. And they tell you it's to keep truckers from getting speeding tickets and stuff. We've done the research. The motor carriers out there that are running speed limiters, you can get in and look at their MixApp d- database. They're still getting speeding tickets. So that means they're getting them on rural roads or they're getting them in road constructions in places where you shouldn't be speeding. So, again, reach out to your lawmakers. Thank you, truck drivers, and thank you, farmers, for what you do to keep our country moving. Fightingfortruckers.com is where you can find more information. We've been talking with the EVP of OIDA, Louie Pugh. Louie, thanks for joining us on AOA today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, coming up next on AOA, we're going to talk about the latest meat demand monitor with Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University. That's next on AOA, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, a diesel that doesn't mess around. Back with more right after this. Turning to biologicals for improved plant nutrition and nitrogen fixing may feel novel to a lot of farmers, but it's a proven method for decades. Nobody knows this better than Terramax, a leading innovator of biological inoculants for more than 25 years. Their strong roots in microbial technology means they know what it takes to deliver stronger roots for crops acre after acre. When you decide to boost your yield with biologicals, turn to Terramax. Then visit TerramaxAg.com to learn more. 
Take control of your legacy with Uncommon Farms. Their ag business professionals can help your farm take on challenges in the five key areas of financials, human resources, strategic planning, management, and succession planning. From their nine subject matter specific peer groups, full service accounting offerings, crop insurance experts, and more, Uncommon Farms is the resource your farm needs to succeed into the future. Visit UncommonFarms.com today to learn more about their service and software offerings that will propel your farm into the future. On the November episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association, we discuss the importance of export markets, MAP and FMD funding, and more with Janice Hiley, who serves on NCGA's Market Development Action Team and the Indiana Corn Marketing Council, along with NCGA Trade Policy Director Nancy Martinez. Think about this. Funding for these two programs has not been increased in almost 20 years. And you might say, well, what do these programs do, Janice? It's all about those relationships we have with countries that we export to. The support comes from these type of programs. In 2020, the economic output produced by ag exports was over 300 billion. And as Janice was saying how crucial MAP and SMD are, they actually are very effective federal investment programs. So the return on investment is over 24 to one. Join us the first Wednesday of every month for the Monthly Grind, a partnership with the National Corn Growers Association on AOA. It's a show you don't wanna miss. I'm Shanola Hampton. Every day, millions of people face hunger. Today, I will share with you some of their experiences. I'm stuck between paying for medications or paying for food. John from Maine. After paying my bills, I can buy groceries. It's sad to say, food comes last. Alice from Oregon. I thought pantries were for less fortunate people but anybody could be less fortunate in a day or even a second. Claire from Virginia. The Feeding America network of food banks helps provide over six billion meals to people in need each year. No one should have to worry where their next meal will come from. Together, we can end hunger. Learn more at feedingamerica.org. Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And thanks for staying with us here on Agriculture of America, AOA, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesels like Roadmaster XL and Ruby Fieldmaster, you can have everyday products that are powered locally. Find your nearest Cenex location right around the corner uh, or visit Cenex.com, Cenex Premium Diesels, a diesel that doesn't mess around. Well, right now, hot, hot off the press, I should say, is the latest meat demand monitor from Kansas State University. And joining us now to talk about this and the uh, great partnership they have with the MDM and the latest details, Dr. Glenn Tonsor with K-State is back with us here on AOA. And Dr. Tonsor, thanks so much for joining us as always. Hope you're doing well. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks for having me on, Jesse. All right. The latest meat demand monitor. I mentioned it is fresh. These are brand new numbers that we are talking about, and I know it'll be available uh, here later today. Let's talk about it. First off, just the the top line overview. What did you guys find with the latest MDM? Yeah. So I always give us a lot of numbers, but the one sentence summary would be in October, we had some improvement on domestic demand compared to September. But the typical person is still very concerned about price and their household budget. So I'm going to you know, detail that out. But the situation is a little better than it was September. But macroeconomic concerns and household finances are front and center in all decisions in the meat case and when you're out and about with your family. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about this here the last few months and, and looking at all the numbers and looking at the meat case and you know, we've roped in the economic factors and more that you alluded to there. Uh, you know, just look at through these numbers kind of one by one, ribeye steak, ground beef, pork chop. You guys kind of detail out a lot of these things. Uh, what were some of the big numbers, big changes, anything of note that you saw as you break things down this month? Yeah. So, it, you know, narrowly retail. So think grocery store for at-home consumption. Uh, six of the eight evaluated products demand was up from September um, that is October is better than September. 
And when we look at food service, we look narrowly at the dinner meal. So think center of the plate main entree. Uh, and as you said, we look at, you know, ribeye steak, hamburgers, uh, pork chop, baby back ribs, chicken breasts, all those kind of things. And then seven of the eight uh, were stronger food service demand. I'm giving that breakdown because the one category that there wasn't a month over month improvement was actually ribeye steak uh, for away from home. And to me, that's not real surprising when the primary concern is macroeconomic financing. So folks that are still going out and eating away from home, uh, even there, they're doing some adjustment and they're a little less likely to pay up for that ribeye steak than they were in September. And that's the most expensive item, right, in our evaluated set here. So that is not surprising to me at all. Um, yeah, so when you get cut level, those kind of uh, details rise to the top. Well, and you mentioned ribeye steak, and I think this is a, a great point for us to maybe talk about just a, a little bit more. I saw a few uh, tweets or or X's, however you want to call it now, um, here just the last few days. Uh, some folks, uh, one in particular, a uh, gentleman posted, he said, you know, with the cost of uh, this ribeye steak and these fillets, I think our uh, weekly steak night is going to turn into a monthly steak night. And we know that obviously the cattle herd is – uh, at a point where it's going to have to rebuild itself here eventually. And we've seen that contraction of that herd. To me, it feels like some of these numbers in terms of ribeye steak and, and et cetera, et cetera, this could be an interesting trend to watch here over the next couple of months ahead. Yeah, uh, agreed. And I'm going to use that as permission to jump to kind of the final point that people will see in our October report because it's cut level and the macroeconomic situation. And specifically in October, you know, we asked folks, and we've done this for several months now, how do you compare your household finances with a year ago? And unfortunately, in October, only 21% say their finances are better than they would have been in October of 22. So for that group, for that 21% that have had improved finances, 71% had a pork chop in the past month, 78% had a beefsteak in the past month. Conversely, the 35% that tell me their finances are worse so a little, a little more than a third of the country saying things are worse than they were a year ago. Only 58% have had a pork chop in the last month, and only 56% have had a beef steak in the last month. So both are consumed less if your finances have declined, which is not surprising. But the pullback is much stronger for beef steak, which is also not surprising. And it fits the, you know, the, the one-off narrative example you just gave me. Um, unless your finances have improved to sort of offset the higher asking price, which is corresponding with lower supply and you know general desire to have ribeye steak in particular, then you're going to you know downgrade and or eat it less often. We're talking talking with Dr. Glenn Tonsor here today from Kansas State University about the latest meat demand monitor. I know in this uh, October report, you guys looked at prior day meals as uh, categories here. Can you discuss that a little bit and tell us what exactly you looked at there? Yeah, and I'd never give this. Uh, you know, do service, go to our agmanager.info website for all the nitty gritty details. But our survey starts with a prior day recall. So we asked for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Did you skip it? Did you have it? If you had it, did you have it at home or away from home? And then what was in it? So, you know, did it include beef? Did it include pork? If you told me it included pork, then there's a drop down that includes sausage or not and so forth. So there's a lot of depth to this exercise. But if we keep it at kind of the species level, uh, in October, 34% had beef in their dinner and 18% had pork in their dinner. So beef owns dinner compared to pork is the example. Conversely, when we look at the breakfast, 19% had pork in their breakfast, 15% had beef in the breakfast, which again is not surprising. Pork tends to be more prevalent among our breakfast meals. Uh, there's no major changes in those numbers compared to the prior month. Um, so not a lot to belabor there, rather than kind of which species own which meals is good to keep in mind. I know, too, meat knowledge and personal diet is another section. And you and I have talked about this before. What were some of the updates there this month? Yeah, so the the diet one is, the way we ask that is, you know, self-declare your diet. Do you regularly consume products from animals, such as meat products we're talking about? Do you consider yourself a vegan, a vegetarian, a flexitarian? So flexitarian is somebody that does consume meat, but, you know, intentionally doesn't every meal. Uh, and there's no major change there, which... Honestly, it probably goes against some of the media attention. Uh, in October, 74% self-declared to be a regular meat consumer. And we've been in that low 70s for several months. So, you know, 70 to 76% regularly say they're a regular meat consumer. 
and an additional 10 to 12% are flexitarians. And that nuance is important because they're also meat consumers. They just may not consume 21 meals a week with a beef, pork, or chicken item in it. So uh, the punchline for your listeners is the U.S. is still a meat-consuming nation. Uh, there are vegans and vegetarians in our population, but context on the prevalence is important. Well, Dr. Tonsor, before we let you go here today, we've got a couple minutes here just to wrap up with some final thoughts. And as you continue to look at these trends, uh, anything you see in the last couple of months here that you're maybe keeping a, a keen eye on as we move forward with the uh, meat demand monitor? Yeah, I I feel like a broken drum and I'm doing it on purpose with you and everybody else, Jesse, is for at least three, if not six months, I've talked a lot about macroeconomic household finances. I still think that's the key driver. I want to reinforce for your listeners, people want to have meat, but their household finances are kind of slowing down their ability or willingness to pay up for it. Uh, I think that's really important to watch the next couple months. You know, we're going into holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, exactly how holiday celebrations are approached. Most people think we're going to have bigger gatherings than in the past compared to the last couple of years in the pandemic. Uh, but exactly what, you know, product is it a, is it a ribeye, right? Is it a, you know, bone-in ribeye or is it a ham or is it a turkey? Or, you know, is it a big pork loin roast? What is it? Uh, I think there's going to be some interesting trade-offs made this holiday season. Folks still want to put a nice piece of meat on the table for their family, but I think the macroeconomic forces are going to be more worth watching in the past. Well, again, you plug that website uh, for the meat demand monitor where folks can get down to the uh, nitty gritty, as you said, in this uh, great project funded in part by the beef checkoff or the pork checkoff. Uh, Glad if folks want to look at these uh, numbers and all the latest data in more detail, where can they do that? Yeah, so ag manager, just like it sounds, one word, dot info. You can Google that and you'll find it. Or if you type my name in, you'll come across it as well. Uh, we have a dedicated page for this project. As you said, it's beef and pork checkoff funded, uh, based at K-State. So everything from it is fully transparent, fully available. The raw data, the monthly reports, deep dives, actually some dashboards that give you state level insights, all that you can find there. So if some of the stuff we've highlighted here is of value to you, I encourage you to go to that website and dig in. Agmanager.info is where you could find the details. And again, uh, great research, great work that you guys do there at K-State with the Meat Demand Monitor. We've been talking today with Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University. And Dr. Tonsor, always great to have you on the show. We will uh, look forward to catching up with you again as we take a look at next month's numbers. For now, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jesse. Have a good one. All right, Dr. Glenn Tonsor there with Kansas State University joining us today on AOA talking about the latest meat demand monitor. All right, coming up next here on AOA brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel and Cenex Roadmaster XL. We're going to be joined by Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. We'll have a conversation about the farm bill, funding the government and more. That's coming up after the break here on AOA Agriculture of America. On the November episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association, we discuss the importance of export markets, MAP and FMD funding, and more with Janice Hiley, who serves on NCGA's Market Development Action Team and the Indiana Corn Marketing Council, along with NCGA Trade Policy Director Nancy Martinez. Think about this. Funding for these two programs has not been increased in almost 20 years. And you might say, well, what do these programs do, Janice? It's all about those relationships we have with countries that we export to. The support comes from these type of programs. In 2020, the economic output produced by ag exports was over $300 billion. And as Janice was saying how crucial MAP and SMD are, they actually are very effective federal investment programs, so the return on investment is over 24 to 1. Join us the first Wednesday of every month for the Monthly Grind, a partnership with the National Corn Growers Association on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. Bean, beans and bean meal are sharply higher, while wheat is mixed and corn is cut somewhere in the middle. Livestock is mixed today with fats and feeders lower, feeders leading the descent there. Hogs are higher into triple digits today. 
Now, both soybean and soy meal are being supported by adverse weather in South America. Strength in soy meal has its roots in the drought of the past several years in Argentina. That's reducing exports coming out of that country. Now, the current expectation is for soybean production to return to normal in the months ahead, but that will mean that we still have several months to go where Brazil and the U.S. fill the void of soy meal exports. Soybean futures found their strength in tight U.S. stocks and current weather concerns in Brazil as well. It's been a bit too wet in southern Brazil, but farmers there are more concerned about dryness in center west brazil weekend rains disappointed once again and the next 10 days are remaining dry with heat rebuilding across the region now that is putting increased importance on thursday's usda WASD crop report amid fears that usda will again reduce the size of the crop the agency has cut its soybean yield estimate in both september and october five times in the past 30 years it cut it again in four of those five years in november Now, the average trade guess is USDA keeping its soybean yield unchanged at 49.6 bushels per acre, with the range of expectations stretching from 49 to 50.3. Now, China imported 5.2 million metric tons of soybeans in October. That's up from 4.1 million last year, but notably below the five-year average for October of 6.2 million metric tons. China's year-to-date soybean imports total 84 million metric tons through the first 10 months of the year. That's up 10.8 million, or 14.6% from last year's pace, while also exceeding crush for the period as well. And crude oil prices are over 2% off at fresh 10-week lows. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. A promise is potent, born of intention, fueled by commitment, It's seeing things through, always showing up. And we know a thing or two about promises here at Susan G. Komen. Over 40 years ago, we locked arms with you toward one vision, a world without breast cancer. By investing in life-saving research and standing up for patient rights, we are shifting the system so all people everywhere get the care they deserve. Because if you've just been diagnosed and don't know where to turn, we've got you. If you can't afford the treatment you need, we've got you. And if you are driven to raise money to honor the best friend you've just lost, we have a place for you here because of you. We're supporting those who need help today while tirelessly searching for tomorrow's cures. Ending breast cancer needs all of us. Visit Komen.org and be a part of the Susan G. Komen community today. Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart, everyday products powered locally by Cenex. Always enjoy a conversation with Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University recapping the latest meat demand monitor. Thanks to him for joining us here on today's program. All right, let's get to our next guest here on the show. Without further ado, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley joining us here on Agriculture of America today. Senator Grassley, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. I should ask uh, to start, has that fall field work wrapped up on your home farm there in uh, Butler County? What's the latest you've heard, Senator? Two weeks ago, it uh, finished corn, soybeans uh, a couple weeks before that. Uh, and I think I've talked to you enough to tell you that uh, this summer, when we had 10 inches of rain compared to 22 inches of rain the year before, so obviously our yield was short. Yep, yep. Well, let's get to uh, some other issues as uh, we get looking at a farm bill and the potential of a continuing resolution here to keep the government funded. I know we have another deadline in front of us next week, Senator Grassley. So what is the latest you're hearing on the continuing resolution for government uh, funding? And could a one-year extension of the Farm Bill be included with that continuing resolution? The farmers that listen to your program would have been hearing me say since about the middle of September that we're not going to get a new five-year farm bill, a one-year extension. I think the rumors on Capitol Hill 
right now are that the leaders, meaning the Republican and Democrat leaders of the two agriculture committees, have agreed that there's going to be a one-year extension. Uh, uh, now, that hasn't been publicly announced, and I'm in, not in a position to announce it. I'm just giving you the rumors, uh, but I think the facts of life uh, do uh, do that. Now, technically, uh, if, if, uh, if the continuing resolution that we have for November 17th until we get a full funding of the government, uh, either before Christmas or the middle of January, uh, if that's the last one we're passing this year, then I think the one-year extension will be in it and should be in it. And even if they had a, we'll say, to December 1st, you could do it now or you could do it again on December the 1st. But uh, it's got to be done between now and Christmas. Well, Senator, I know thinking about uh, this continuing resolution, get the government funded and more. I know you reintroduced in the Senate the Biennial Budgeting and Appropriations Act, and and I'd like to bring that up and and let you explain to us what that would do, because it seems like that would go with all these different issues we're having as far as funding the government and looking at things there. So can you tell us what that is? Yeah, I'll tell you what that is, but I don't think that r- really answers your question, and so I'll rephrase your question. What can we do to keep government from being shut down from time to time with all these deadlines? But first of all, a con- uh, my introduction of the biennial appropriation bill would be that appropriations take up so much time. Why not do it once for two years instead of a year at a time? And then that would also give the appropriators, and I'm not an appropriations committee, but it would uh, they would spend one year funding government for two years, and then the second year could be used for oversight to make sure that the money's properly spent and whether enough, enough money was included in the two-year appropriation bill. But uh, there's another uh, bill that I have voted for that got 56 votes, so it was four votes short of getting an amendment to the first appropriation bill that the Senate has passed this year by Senator Langford of uh, Oklahoma, and uh, and I'm a co-sponsor of it. Uh, it would just say we're not going to shut down the government all the time. When you get up to the end of the fiscal year, you're going to keep government funded at the previous year's level until all the appropriation bills are passed for a new funding level. And that would take care of all these problems we have. It costs money to shut down the government, costs money to open up the government, and and a government is supposed to be service to the people of the country. And if it isn't operating, it can't be of a service to the people of the country. But the most important thing is the uncertainty of it is bad for government, but it's bad for a lot of people that uh, when when they think the government might not function, it affects even uh, things in the private sector. Senator Grassley, I want to turn our attention to everything going on in Israel and the continued war in Ukraine. We have a lot of these issues going on around the world. The FBI has sounded the alarm on increased threats of attacks on Americans at home and abroad. I know some folks with that are worried about the southern border, potentially. Can, can you comment on just some of those concerns from the FBI and, and what you've uh, maybe heard there on Capitol Hill? Yeah. Well, it's in the neighborhood of 160 people, a little more than 160 people, are on the terrorist watch list that have waited across the Rio Grande coming to this country. And now how many else that would be on the terrorist watch list that have snuck into the country and not been confronted by the border patrol? That's an unknown number and there's probably some of those, maybe even more than 160. Now understand you can't get on an airplane in another country to come to the United States if you're on the terrorist watch list, but you can go to Mexico and walk across the border and even be confronted by the Border Patrol uh, being on the terrorist watch list, 
and coming into our country. Now, you wouldn't you think if you can't get on an airplane, come to the United States, and you were caught at the border, wouldn't you be sent right back across the Rio Grande to where you waded into the United States so you weren't in this country to create terrorist activities? Now, the FBI hopefully is on top of all these people, but you never know. Uh, we've had plenty of uh, terrorist activities, maybe not in the last three or four years, but we've had multiple people killed uh, because of uh, of this uh, uh, revolutionary approach of a lot of terrorists. And uh, so uh, it's, it's a threat to our country. We haven't had anything happen yet, but it could happen yet tomorrow. So it's uh, just hopefully the FBI is on top of it and they can intervene before people die. Senator, uh, another issue I want to ask you about, I'll go back to agriculture here a little bit. Carbon pipelines are a pretty big topic in the Midwest and agriculture right now. We've seen one company, Navigator CO2, suspend their project. Summit Carbon Solutions is continuing on. I'm just curious if you've heard concerns uh, from your constituents there in Iowa, uh, folks uh, who are either for or against some of these carbon pipeline projects that have been proposed. Any comment on that? Sure. At my county meetings, it came up regularly. My I listen to them and, uh, and can uh, sympathize with the problems they see from it, uh, but uh, it's an entirely state issue, and so it's not something that I can say is, uh, will happen or not happen because it's up to the utility board of the state of Iowa. And uh, and uh, that's kind of where I have to leave it because it's not a federal issue. Uh, this business of getting access under eminent domain uh, to uh, go across property, uh, those that's done under state law. Okay. One other final thing, uh, Proposition 12. I just wondered if there, there was any update there. I know you and I have talked in the past about potentially something being done on the legislative side to – possibly reverse the Supreme Court decision. I know there's been talk of the EATS Act, the Ending Agricultural Trade Suppression Act, possibly doing that. Just any updates on on Proposition 12 and maybe a yeah. legislative change sure. to that? Yeah. Well, Ernst and I have joined the Marshall Bill that would uh, overturn the uh, Proposition 12 in California and I guess overturn the Supreme Court decision uh, and, uh, uh, it, our whole approach was going to try to get it on the, uh, five-year farm bill, but since we're going to have a one-year extension, that debate will be put off until next year. All right. Well, we do appreciate the time as always here on Agriculture of America with that Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa. Senator, pleasure to talk with you again. Have a great day. We will talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. I'll be glad to be back with you whenever you ask. Goodbye. And once again, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley joining us here today on AOA Agriculture of America. And again, uh, we're going to be watching closely as uh, we see what happens with a continuing resolution to keep the government funded past November 17th, that deadline coming up. And then also, will a one-year extension of the Farm Bill get tied to that, as Senator Grassley said Rumors are on Capitol Hill that we're going to see a one-year extension of the current farm bill before we get a new five-year farm bill authorized. Plenty of things to uh, take a look at there and keep our eye on in terms of what's happening on Capitol Hill impacting agriculture. So we're going to watch that. We'll keep you informed here on AOA as to what is happening. And again, Thank you to uh, Senator Grassley for joining us on the program today. All right, coming up next here on AOA, we're going to take a look at a few other news headlines before we wrap it up on the show. We are going to get an update on the uh, county committee elections. Those start this week. Also, some comments from the national sorghum producers that the latest USDA relief program hurts larger farmers. We're going to talk about all that more coming up here after the break as we'll be back with more on AOA brought to you by Senex Roadmaster XL and Senex Ruby Fieldmaster everyday products powered locally by Senex. Back with more right after this. As veterans, we're no strangers to helping others. 
It's what we were taught, trained, and told to do. It could be for anything. Helping a friend move. Listening to a fellow veteran for hours at any hour of the day. Or just simply making time for people. A neighbor, a loved one, or even a stranger. We're often the first to help others. There's no question about it. But we do have one question for the veterans listening. When was the last time you reached out for help? Perhaps it's time to do for yourself what you would do for others. If you or someone you know needs resources, whether it's for stress, finances, employment, or mental health, don't wait. Reach out. Find more information at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Everyone has a community to lean on. A neighborhood, school, kids' teams, where you worship, work, work out, or any other place or group where you choose to belong. Communities can provide support when you need it, and even when you don't know you do. Like when it comes to preventing underage drinking and other substance use. You've talked with your kids and shared clear expectations, but you're not with them every minute. Your community members, friends and relatives, teachers and coaches, faith leaders, and other important adults in your kids' lives can be your eyes, ears, and a supportive influence when you're not around, reinforcing your messages with your kids and alerting you to warning signs of underage drinking or other substance use. So talk with your kids about these issues and involve the members of your community to help keep your kids safe. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit talktheyhearyou.samhsa.gov. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Jim Levis, a CHS seed sales manager, about 2024 seed decisions. Jim, when should farmers start the seed purchasing process? The seed process actually starts way back when farmers are actually planting the crop. They're looking at what seed gives them the best vigor. After that, basically, it comes down to looking at that emergence, overall plant health, and down to yield. The actual sales process from our side, basically, we start looking in the month of August and farmers start making those decisions as the combines are hitting those fields. Jim, what new seed technologies will be available for next year? With some of the new genetics that are coming out, we're seeing VT4, which is a new trait. We're starting to see an increase in smart stack technology, which in 2024, we're seeing a new smart stacks pro that will definitely help with the pressures that we're seeing in 24 with issues like corn rootworm. As far as soybeans go with some of the new technologies, things that growers should be looking at, you know, is that disease package by hybrid. Growers, you all have the option to look at the Extend Flex or E3 technology and different ways to address those would be making sure you got good ratings for white mold score. There are some new technologies in soybeans for sudden death. Where could growers get advice on seed decisions? Growers can reach out to any CHS agronomist. We handle many different varieties and traits. If they reach out to any of their local agronomists within any CHS trade territory, they'll be able to get any of the answers they're looking for. We've been talking with Jim Levis, a CHS seed sales manager, about 2024 seed decisions here on Around the Table. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jesse. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Are you curious about biologicals for stronger crop health? You're not alone. At Terramax, they've seen more farmers just like you choosing to apply biologicals with increasing success. For more than 25 years, they've been harnessing the power of microbial inoculants to strengthen roots, improve soil health, and boost yields acre after acre. If you're ready to get a biological boost, turn to the experts at Terramax. Visit TerramaxAg.com to learn more about what microbial technology can do for your farm. This is Ernie Johnson Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles. And college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill. Or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association.
keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, like Cenex Roadmaster XL and Cenex Ruby Fieldmaster. Everyday products powered locally by Cenex. Well, we talked about this uh, in the last segment with Senator Chuck Grassley. The government is again about to run out of money with a shutdown cliff next week and a farm bill extension hanging in the balance. Well, another stopgap funding bill by the 17th would be the likely vehicle to extend the already expired farm bill. But new House Speaker Mike Johnson told Fox News Sunday that he'll fight for a non-traditional stopgap instead of continued level funding. What we call on Capitol Hill a continuing resolution now and what we've dealt with in years past is that this would allow us time, and everybody understands, allow us time to continue this appropriations process. We're committed to bringing 12 bills to the floor as the law uh, statutory law requires Congress to do that hasn't been done in many years. And do so, Johnson has proposed with a possible laddered approach of multiple deadlines as annual spending bills are passed, which is unlikely to win Senate support. Without a short-term deal, a farm bill extension will languish. Top House Ag Democrat David Scott has now called for a one-year extension, matching similar calls by Senate Ag leaders and resistance to more SNAP limits. We stand united against any efforts to take food away from children, families, or any vulnerable American in this farm bill or any legislation. Republicans have dug in as well. House Ag Chair Glenn G.T. Thompson. Let's move from states going out of their way to keep employable individuals idle and disengaged and spend more time fostering connections with employers and education providers. Now, with no time left for a new farm bill this year at a perilous fight over a routine stopgap bill and farm law extension, the next 10 days will be critical in determining the direction of farm and other policies. Well, the U.S. quarter soybean harvest, they continued to outpace the five-year averages last week, and the condition of the winter wheat crop improved, according to the latest crop progress report that was out Monday afternoon. Corn harvest is moved uh, moved over the three-quarters uh, complete mark, now up 10 percentage points to 81% complete as of Sunday. And that is four points behind last year's pace, but four points ahead of the five-year average. Iowa and Illinois, 90%, 89% harvested as of Sunday. Uh, most of the uh, lagging in the corn harvest seems to be in the eastern corn belt, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, ranging from 40 to 46% complete as of Sunday. Now, soybean harvest, 91% complete as of Sunday, up six percentage points from the week before. That's two points behind last year's pace, but five points ahead of the five-year average. Illinois and Iowa soybeans, 95% and 97% harvested, respectively, as of Sunday. Meantime, winter wheat planting progress, 90% complete as of Sunday. One point behind last year, but one point ahead of the five-year average. Crop progress shows 75% of the crop has emerged as of Sunday, while winter wheat condition rated 50% good to excellent. That's up 3% from last week's number, well above 30% at this time last year. Kansas and Oregon are rated poorly, though, at just 31% and 37% good to excellent, respectively. So a few concerns there that we want to keep our eyes on. Well, USDA announced the Emergency Relief Program for 2022 10 months after the funding was initially signed into law. But the national sorghum producers say there are two major flaws in the program that make it a disaster in itself. First, USDA established a progressive payment factor to fit total payments within a budget that will severely harm full-time farm families. NSP says the progressive requirement will actually cut deepest on those who face the largest losses. Now, second, although the law requires producer-paid premiums to be netted out for all producers, USDA's new ERP only nets out such premiums for underserved farmers. The organization says the progressive aspect of the payments is no more than a backdoor pay limit that violates both congressional intent and the letter of the law. They point out that structuring payments this way will cause immense harm to full-time farm families now and in the future. Well, the USDA will begin mailing ballots this week for the Farm Service Agency County and Urban County Committee elections. Ballots will go to all eligible agricultural producers and private landowners across the country. Elections are occurring at certain local administrative areas for those committee members who make important decisions about how federal farm programs are administered locally. 
Now, producers and landowners must return their ballots to their local FSA county office or have their ballots postmarked by December 4th to be counted. FSA Administrator Zach Ducheneau says, quote, in order for county committees to be effective, they must truly represent all who are producing, end quote. Now, producers, they must participate or cooperate in an FSA program to be eligible to vote in the county committee election. Each committee has from three to 11 elected members who serve three-year terms and at least one seat representing a local administrative area is up for election each year. And also, sugar beet harvest is in full swing for U.S. producers in the 11 major sugar beet producing states, which include California, Colorado, Idaho, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oregon, Washington, and Wyoming. Jack Breidenbach, president of the Colorado Sugar Beet Growers Association, says it's a positive situation right now for the industry. The sugar market is strong and got a solid demand and the prices are, are solid. So we're just pretty positive at this time with the beets. Sugar beet content is averaging 18% sugar with tonnage at about 29 tons per acre and about 10% of the crop is left to be harvested. He says all sugar produced in the U.S. stays in the U.S. We raise about 85% of our domestically uh, used sugar. 85% of the sugar that's used in the U.S. is grown. The other 15% is imported. And um, 55% of the domestic grown crop is sugar beets, and the other is from sugar cane. The larger portion is from sugar beet crop. All the northern states grow sugar beets, and the southern states like Louisiana and Florida some in Texas, they grow sugarcane, but uh, we're all, it's all used for the same purposes. And Breidenbach says the sugar is used mainly in bulk sugar bakeries and in soft drinks. Again, that's comments with Jack Breidenbach, the president of the Colorado Sugar Beet Growers Association. All right, well, we are out of time here on AOA Agriculture of America today. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to learn more about the latest uh, Global Pork Quarterly from Bank with Christine McCracken, Senior Analyst of Animal Protein. We'll get the details on the new Ag Economy Barometer with Dr. Jim Mintert from Purdue University. And we'll talk markets with Don Rose from U.S. Commodities. Thanks for joining us here on AOA today, brought to you by Cenex, Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil oil that runs smart. Have a great rest of your day. I'm Jesse Allen. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Take control of your legacy with Uncommon Farms. Their ag business professionals can help your farm take on challenges in the five key areas of financials, human resources, strategic planning, management, and succession planning. From their nine subject matter specific peer groups, full service accounting offerings, crop insurance experts, and more, Uncommon Farms is the resource your farm needs to succeed into the future. Visit UncommonFarms.com today to learn more about their service and software offerings that will propel your farm into the future. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Being blind doesn't always look how others may think. Stargardt disease was supposed to define me. Retinitis pigmentosa aimed to overwhelm my family. It tried to cut me down. A blinding eye disease attempted to force me away from doing what I was born to do. But it cannot stop me. I have the tools. I will keep moving forward. Pushing past the limits of this disability. I know where to find support and where I can be seen. Loss of sight won't blind our vision. Innovative research, educational resources, supportive community. The Foundation Fighting Blindness is leading the charge in finding treatments and cures for blinding diseases. Learn more at fightingblindness.org. A public service message from the Foundation Fighting Blindness.